If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to take that and open it with me to our study of the Gospel of Luke. We find ourselves once again back in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. If I were to ask you this morning, what is the greatest of all Christian virtues? How would you answer that question? What is the greatest of all Christian virtues? You might say love. Love is the greatest of all Christian virtues. You might say that we are to be loving people and true enough. Jesus did in fact say they will know you are Christians by your love. And so you might say love is the greatest of all Christian virtues. And someone else might come along though, however, and say forgiveness. Forgiveness is the greatest Christian virtue, since when Jesus was speaking to his disciples about prayer, he said to them, you need to pray in a way in which you ask God for forgiveness, because if you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. So you might say because of that, then forgiveness would be a reflection of the greatest virtue that Christians ought to have. But then someone else may come along and say, well, we ought to be giving people. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So because of that, you might say, well, that is the greatest Christian virtue. And all of those for certain are indeed Christian virtues, and none of them can be certainly diminished by any of the others in any other way. And yet, I believe we could rightly say that even those virtues are the outflow, the reflection, if you will, of what is the greatest of all Christian virtues. And the virtue that I am referring to is that of humility. Humility. You say, why do you say that? Because humility is the opposite Humility, in fact, is the vanquisher. Humility is the crusher of the greatest expression of the sinful heart. And that is pride. Pride. That is what we have before us this morning in our text. We're focusing on verses 46 to 50. And it is a lesson on what makes... (laughs) the Christian truly great. Last Lord's Day, on one of those special days of our time as a church family, we are gathered together for communion. And in our time of communion, we get to reflect upon Christ in a, in a more concentrated, special way, not, not lessening it from any other day that we worship Jesus Christ, but it is somewhat of a special occasion as we remember Him in His death and in His resurrection. And as we ponder all of that and what has been accomplished for us by way of our salvation through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, that reality is what has been on the mind of Jesus Christ and has been the emphasis of Jesus Christ throughout His 
months of ministry that he walked on the face of this earth and he spends it with his disciples. As we're in this section of the Gospel of Luke, this is what is on the mind of Jesus Christ. He desires to prepare them for his departure from this earth. It's not so different really than from what we may desire to do with those whom we are close to, those whom we love. If we were to depart from this earth, we would want them to be prepared for our leaving. And so we would desire to spend time with them and to share with them all that we thought necessary in order to prepare them for that. And this is what Jesus has been doing with his disciples. He wants them to be ready. He wants them to be prepared to live the Christian life well. He wants them to be fully equipped to fulfill their ministry. They had been chosen by God. Chosen by him to carry on the kingdom work after he was gone. Left to themselves, they wouldn't be able to do that in their present condition of weak faith, their present condition of pride. They had neither the proper attitude nor the proper understanding of what they needed to carry on the work. They were still petty with one another, still attacking each other. They still wanted an earthly kingdom where, where they would be seen as great. An earthly kingdom where people could come to them and bow to them and, and praise them. And so they, once again, in the training of their life, needed to be reminded of this Christian truth. They needed to be exhorted to exercise the proper Christian attitude. And, and the training they needed is the training that we need. It's what we need as Christians. Right? For we must constantly be reminded of basic Christian truth. I like to play golf from time to time. It's somewhat of a frustrating habit I have. And anytime winter comes, I can't play golf. And so when springtime comes and summer comes, I pull the golf clubs out to try to play, and I have to tell myself, you just need to go back to the basics. Keep your eye on the ball. Because it's easy to tweak things and forget what you learn. Well, this is the same true reality for us as Christians. Sometimes we just need to go back to the basics. We have to be exhorted in just the exercise of proper Christian attitude. This is what's happening here. Notice as I read this, just follow along as I read this in verses 46 through 50, just to get us ready for what Jesus is going to say. An argument arose among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you this is the one who is great. And John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he does not follow along with us. And Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you 
is for you. Just a small little event in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and yet so profound in what it says to us. Luke tells us that the disciples are having an argument about greatness. Who is the greatest? Mark's gospel gives us a little bit more detail. In fact, if you read Mark's account in Mark chapter 9, I want us to just turn there for a moment. If you read what it says, it says that they're on their way through Galilee. They're on their way through Galilee. It's it's somewhat of a semi-cognito. They want to kind of stay away from the crowds. Verse 26 through 32, you say, after crying out, remember the the man comes to Jesus after Jesus arrives from coming down from the mountain and showing his glory. And the man's there with his child and and the Jesus is about to take this demon out of this young man. And after crying out and throwing him to the ter- into terrible convulsions, verse 26 says, it came out. And the boy became much like a corpse that most of them said he's dead. And Jesus takes him by the hand, raises him and he gets up, and when he had come into the house, that is Jesus, when he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this one cannot come out except anything but prayer. And of course, we talked about that somewhat last Lord's Day when we were walking through this, and from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he was unwilling for anyone to know. So this is a A private session, if you will. Jesus wants to teach his disciples some private lessons. Verse 31 says, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. So this is what he keeps reminding them about. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his rejection by the religious establishment of the day. He keeps reminding them of what is about to come. He's going to die. He's going to rise from the dead. And so he's reminding them, really, of the essentials of the gospel. The essentials of the gospel. This is what the gospel is. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. That's the essence of the gospel in a nutshell. It reminds us of His righteousness. It reminds us that God is sovereign over all things. That the reality of God in His hand of orchestrating and carrying out all this, even the killing of His own Son, at the hands of wicked men, is all under His control. Jesus is telling them beforehand, this is going to happen. And so He's reminding these disciples, not only of what is going to happen with Him, but He's reminding them of the heart depravity of men. That mankind is depraved. They will kill even the one who comes to save them. The inability of man to save himself. There is nothing more wicked in all of creation than the heart of man. 
Jeremiah 17.9 even says it that way. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It's more wicked than anything. Something wicked, that, that term just means something uneven. Something crooked. And for the Jews, the heart was something that in its own nature impeded progress. The heart left to itself just impeded the right direction to go. It is desperately sick, Jeremiah says, who can even understand it. So the implication of the prophet there is that not man, man cannot understand it, but only God. God sees the heart clearly. God knows what the heart truly needs. And its greatest need is the cure of the gospel. So part, part of the lesson to the disciples is this reminder, the reminder of the depths of depravity of man that run through each and every heart. And it includes then the righteousness, His own righteousness of Christ, which is the only righteousness that is acceptable to God. In fact, the Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's the righteousness of God. The righteous man lives by faith. So these events here in Mark chapter 9, and as we're recorded in our study in Luke chapter 9, is a reminder of who Christ is. Jesus is reminding them that I am the Savior. And so it helps us know Him, right? He is the goal of everything we learn. It isn't morality. It isn't some moral organization. It isn't some pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps in order that we might be moral people. It is so that we might know Him. To know Jesus Christ is eternal life. In fact, He even said that in John 17. This is eternal life. And He's praying to the Father that they may know You, that is His Father, God the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. That is essential Christian truth. It is that gospel that we must preach in our ears every day. You and I are preachers of the gospel. We may not be called formally as preachers of the gospel because we're not called into that vocationally, but we are preachers of the gospel and we ought to be preaching in our ears every day the very gospel truth so that we might not ever forget and become dull of mind. The path of redemption for us did not come from some kind of earthly throne. The path of redemption came through the cross. That's what's on the mind of Jesus Christ. His exodus. In fact, verse 51 of Luke chapter 9 says that, and it came about when the days were approaching for His ascension. And he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. <coughs> the ascension was on his mind. His death, his resurrection, all that was to take place in order that he might be glorified to the place that he was before he ever came to the earth. It needed to be on their minds. That should continually be on our minds as Christians. 
The essence of the gospel must be on our minds all the time. Why? Because we are so prone to forget it. We are prone to wander, as the hymnal says. Not be profoundly affected by the reality of the gospel. We get lackadaisical about the gospel, and therefore we get lackadaisical about our own Christian living. We transfer the reality of what it ought to be in sober-mindedness before God to a cheap imitation which becomes less like Christ than anything. So Jesus repeats these words again. It's an exhortation to let it sink into your ears, guys. That's what he said, remember? Let this sink into your ears, verse 44. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That that simply means the plan of God is going to take place. There will be a rejection. There will be a death. There will be a burial. There will be a resurrection. There will be an ascension. All of this must take place. And so this is what's on his mind. Should be on our minds. So Jesus repeats it. He has already said it back in verse 22 of chapter 9. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, be raised on the third day. He has already said it very clearly. They missed the point. They missed the intent of that. And so Jesus, out of patience, out of concern for their spiritual growth, their spiritual maturity, repeats himself again. Jesus is repeating himself again over and over throughout our study. We've been in the classroom of Jesus. We're not auditing his class, we're getting graded on it. We've been in it for some time, and the question is, have we learned Have we learned the lesson of enduring faith? Right? Remaining. Have we learned the lesson of an eternal perspective rather than an earthly perspective? Have we learned the lesson of self-denial? Self-denial. Jesus is repeating the old lesson over and over again. Are we getting it? Christians, are we getting it? All of that, all of that reality is enveloped in the attitude of humility. This this text really is about humility. Humility is an attitude. And humility as an attitude, as opposed to the dominant attitude of pride that is so woven into the fabric of our fallenness. Notice these men are arguing about who is the greatest. Who is the greatest? You can almost hear their petty little arguments going on after Peter, James, and John come down from the mountain and Jesus casts out this demon, knowing from Mark's account that they could not. And they're wondering why they could not. That's probably what the argument was about. Oh, I bet if I had tried, I could have done it. Oh yeah, sure. You you did some before Andrew. You did some before Thaddeus. But you know what? I'm Bartholomew. I, I really can do it. I get out of the way. I, I I bet I could have done that. I'm better than you are. 
In fact, John kind of reveals a little bit about potentially some of the argument going on. Listen, they're arguing about, hey, why didn't you stop that guy from doing things? Why didn't you stop that one who isn't part of our group? How come you didn't do that? Yet Jesus had said in verse 24, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. Pure, unadulterated individual pride. Nothing is more natural to our fallenness than that. In fact, pride and the exercise of it is the defining sin of our depravity. It is the defining sin. In fact, we get a graphic picture of the outworking of this pride for our own understanding and and how depravity exercises itself in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 to 9, Timothy or Paul tells Timothy, listen, this is how it's going to be in ministry. This is how it's going to be in life. This is the outworking of the prideful, sinful heart. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Why? Because men will be lovers of self. Now, he wasn't saying that in order to diminish the time he was in or the time from the history of his own life. He was saying, this is the reality of it. We're in it. People are lovers of self. They love money. They're boastful, arrogant. They're revilers. They're disobedient to parents. You young people think it's not a, it's a small thing to disobey your parents. God doesn't think so. This is the attitude of the prideful. They're ungrateful, unholy, unloving. Irreconcilable, that's the number one cause of divorce in the United States and across the world. Irreconcilable differences. Even among quote-unquote Christians who get divorced. They're malicious gossips. They're without self-control. They're brutal. They're haters of good. Treacherous, reckless, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They hold to a form of godliness although they've denied its power. Paul says to Timothy, avoid such men like that. He doesn't mean just men, he means people. Avoid people like that. In other words, don't be in cohorts with them. Don't be in fellowship with them. Why? Because they enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. They're always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he lists two guys. How would you like to be listed there? Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses. How would you like to have your names written in God's Word for all to read? You were one who opposed truth. That's what it says. These men opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. You see, that's the exercise of depravity. That's the exercise of pride seen in the outworking of self-centeredness. That's really the core of all of that. The practice of self-love, the practice of self-satisfaction, the practice of self-promotion. It's all about me, self-exaltation, my own self-fulfillment. All of that opposes truth. 
All of those are passions of the prideful heart. I find it ironic in our world today, those vices or those actions of the prideful heart are actually considered virtues. In our world, those are the things you're to strive for. Self-satisfaction, self-promotion, self-exaltation, self-fulfillment. You're to strive for those things, but the truth is that they are longings of the prideful human heart. Not a godly heart. Pride is at the core. It's pride that produces rebellion against God. Because pride's at the center of all sin. Doesn't matter if it's an unredeemed heart or if it's a Christian heart, pride is still there. It's latent within our unredeemed moral humanness. We have been saved by God's grace, and yet in our unredeemed humanity, that which will be put off when we are glorified, there is still the latent reality of sinfulness there, and we fight it daily in the process of sanctification. And it will be there battling against us until we are glorified in heaven. And so we fight it daily, or at least we ought to be. Pride begins with an attitude and then moves into action. That's what we see happening here. You notice what Jesus says. Jesus, verse 47, knowing what they were thinking in their heart. This is where sin is. This is the essence of where sin is born. It's born in the heart and it produces itself in action, in outwardness. Some might try to say that your sin in action isn't really sin, but sin is in the heart which produces the action. Some say sin is only in action. Oh, no, no. Jesus clearly says it's in the heart. So Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, and verse 46 is the outworking of that heart, an argument arises among them. They're arguing who among us can do a better job at what we couldn't seem to be doing. Maybe it was even Peter, James, and even John saying to the other guys, yeah, well, if we were down here, we could accomplish it. But what begins in the heart in verse 47 is produced in action. Now, there's no better place in Scripture to see the opposite the opposite attitude of pride than in Philippians chapter 2. Now I want us to turn there this morning. Philippians chapter 2. Because in verse 3 through 8, we see it. The Apostle Paul says to the believers in Philippi, do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. who, Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's the reality to which we see there when it comes to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, although being God, abandoned that sovereign position. Jesus Christ, who had no need to abandon any kind of position that he was in, and yet verse 6 says, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard that something to be grasped, something to be tightly held to. He was under and placed himself willingly under the Father's will. He abandons his sovereign position. And in that abandonment, he accepts a servant's place. You notice verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Taking the form of a servant. He abandons what is rightly due to him as God, being all the glory and essence of the Godhead, and abandons that, empties himself. That emptying is not a subtraction of who Jesus Christ was by any stretch in his deity, but a taking on of humanity. Putting aside the independent use of his, his attributes. Taking on humanity. Taking on a servant position. And in that servant position, he approaches a sinful people. Being made in the likeness of men, verse 7 says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. He approaches a sinful people, abandons the sovereign place, accepts a servant's place, and approaches those who don't deserve it. And in doing that, he is adopting a selfless posture. Verse 8 says, he humbled himself. He adopted the posture of humility. He adopts in himself the reality and expression of the humble attitude, the selfless attitude. And of course, verse 9 through 11 certainly tells us he ascends after that to the highest place to the supreme, as the supreme prince because of who he is. Notice Paul's words just in light of that following in verses 12 through 16. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see, Paul's tying the reality and essence of humility to the basic issue of Christianity. This is the outflow. This is the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling before God. Why? Because it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, among you appear as lights in the world. Well, how do you do that? Well, you hold fast the word of life. You hold fast to Christ. You hold fast to His word so that in the day 
of Christ. Paul says, I may give cause, I may have cause to glory because all my efforts towards you to teach you about Christ, to share the gospel with you, to help you grow in sanctification in Christ wasn't just in vain. My toil was in vain. In other words, I didn't waste my time because you're actually living out a humble life. I go back to Luke chapter 9. Jesus knew what they were arguing about. They didn't have to say anything. Does Jesus know everything? <coughs> yes. Yes, He does. He's God. He knew what they were arguing about. They didn't have to say anything to Him. He knew the cause. He knew why, and so He gives a lesson. And the condition for greatness in the kingdom of God is Humility, it's lowliness. Verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. There's a direct link between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. You receive one, you cannot separate them all. There is not having God without Jesus Christ. There is no salvation without Jesus Christ. Lowliness, humility that glories in serving. It glories in lowliness. Not just service to some, but service for and to all. You notice verse 48 says, For he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. In other words, Christianity is not a group of self-seekers. That's not what Christianity is. It's not about us. Christianity is a group of people who are self-sacrificers. We're like Christ. That is simply to say that the silent killer, beloved, of Christian service, the silent killer of Christian unity, the, the attitude that rejects depravity, the attitude that says, no, no, man isn't depraved. No, no, man can do it on his own. No, no, man is good enough. The attitude that rejects all of that also rejects the deity of Christ. That is an attitude of pride. What it is. Notice what pride is doing just in this passage. They're arguing with each other about who is the greatest. That's simply to say that they were not unified. They were fighting, and unity is destroyed. Pride is unity destroying. Why? Because it is self-absorbed. Pride is self-absorbed. And those who are self-absorbed will ultimately exercise a judgmental and critical attitude towards others, and in the end, that divides. In fact, that is the most common destroyer of unity in any group. Why? Because it is the destroyer of every relationship. You think you're better than somebody else, guess what? Pretty soon you're not going to want to be around that person because they're not as good as you. That's why the Apostle Paul begins Philippians 2 with those words. If there 
is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being, get this, of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. All of those terminologies, same mind, same love, united, one purpose, all of those have a togetherness reality, not a separateness reality. And you notice, not only does pride destroy unity, but here in verse 48 of Luke, pride rejects God. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The implication is, if you don't receive me, you don't receive God. Pride says, I don't need Jesus Christ. Pride says, therefore, I don't need God. So to not be humble is to be God-rejecting. Think about that. Think about in practical applications, even in your own life, in your own heart, and how you exercise things, even in your Christian life, to be prideful is to be God-rejecting. To say, whatever you say, God, is not good enough. My way is better. You want to continue down the road of pride? You want to continue down the road of self-exaltation? Then know this, that Jesus says, exercise of willful pride just shows that you're not with me. You want to exercise willful pride and claim Jesus Christ? The reality is you're a liar. The truth isn't in you, as 1 John says, because you're walking in darkness. And therefore, you're not with God. So if you've received me, Jesus says, then you have received the one who sent me. And if you're with him in unity, then you would be like this child in attitude. You would be humble. And you would receive just like this child does. You see, pride is that exercise of our depraved heart. It's the exaltation of ourselves to push our own agenda, our own ambitions, so that we might receive the praise. The opposite, the opposite of how the redeemed are to think is he who is least among you, this is the one who's great. In other words, what is great in the kingdom of God? Humility. That's, what great, that's what's great in God's kingdom. Humility. The greatness of humility <laughs> is oxymoronic to the world. It's not great. The false religions of our day do not preach humility. They don't think that way. They can't think that way. It's all about them. To be great in our world, you have to promote self at every level and seek to be praised. You have to seek to be served. In fact, you look around at any place in our world that doesn't know God, those who are served by others, those are the ones who are great in our world. But not in God's kingdom. The ones who are great in the kingdom of God are not the people who fight for the top, who desire the praise of men. No, it is those who are the lowly, the humble, those who consider others more important than themselves. That's the great in God's kingdom. 
So God tells us in his word that he is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. How can you say, I need to exalt myself and expect to have God on your side? He is opposed to the proud. It is those who are humble, those who are contrite of spirit, those who tremble at the word of God, Isaiah says, that God looks to. So if pride kills and reflects the heart of the evil one, but humility unifies, humility reflects the heart of Jesus Christ. And the question for us is how do we, how do we get that in our lives? How do we cultivate humility in our life? Well, I just want to remind us this morning really quickly of four necessary actions. Four necessary actions, I think, that are born out of a humble heart that help us to remain humble as Christians. You've got to start there. These four actions, I think, help us do that. And I'll just list them for you. These aren't new. I've shared them here before. But they're a good reminder for us. Remember, repent, respond, and relinquish. Those are the four words. Remember, repent, respond, and relinquish. If we're going to develop humility, if we're going to cultivate humility, if we're going to exercise humility in our life that Christ is calling for, then we need to deal with pride. And how do we deal with pride? With these four actions. Remember who we were without Christ. Remember who we were without Christ. One person said this. I think it's a good way to say it. Humility is the virtue by which a man becomes conscious of his own unworthiness. Humility is the virtue by which a person becomes conscious of their own unworthiness. This is the Christian attitude. This is to be our central focus. We certainly do not deserve the high place in which God has placed us in Christ. We've learned in Ephesians, we have all the spiritual blessings for us in the heavenly places. All of us were taken out of the cesspool of depraved humanity. And everything we have and are is a gift from God. Why Paul said it to the Philippians, have this attitude in you which was also in Christ. In the words of Luke chapter 9 here, it's not about being with those who think they're great. It's about being with those who know they're not great. Be lowly like the child. So the first is remember. If you want to develop humility in your life, remember from where you came. Remember what God has brought you out of, who you were without Christ. Just a lost soul groping in a world with no hope. Secondly, learn to practice repentance in your life. Practice repentance. Only the proud believe they don't need to repent. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn. Mourn. This is kingdom living. This is what kingdom citizens do. We we mourn over our sins. Jesus said, they shall be comforted. 
In fact, the Apostle John, in writing his, uh, his first epistle that we know as 1 John, his first letter, he writes in there in chapter 1, listen, this is the characteristic of the Christian. We are to be confessing our sins always, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. That's a Christian attitude. It's a Christian heart. Continual confession. And so we open the Word of God or we're, we're with a friend or a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ and we're studying the Bible together and we look at the mirror of the Word of God and the Word of God takes its scalpel and divides down like Hebrews tells us down to the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We know and we see the uncleanness that is there and our spirit is, is telling us you need to respond to this, right? You, you, need, to, you need to repent of this and we should be one in our heart's attitude of repentance. That's our newness. A new and natural response to sin is not to avoid it, not to try to hide it, but to turn from it. Turn from sin to righteousness. You do that when you have a continual practice of repentance in your heart. Developing humility is hard, yet we must do it, and we can do it when we remember who we were before Christ, and we repent of sin continually in our life, never thinking, hey, we've arrived, we got it. Third, respond rightly to rebuke. Respond rightly to rebuke. This is probably where the rubber really meets the road. The other things are, are kind of private in our own heart, right? We remember who we were before God, before God ever drew us to Himself. We were reading the Word of God. No one else knows what's in our heart. God does, and we can kind of hide it from everybody else. Sometimes we can push down and tamp down our conscience when it's ringing its bell about our own sin. Nobody else knows that. But this one we can't escape. Respond rightly to rebuke. Common responses when confronted with sin in us typically is to defend ourselves. Defend our actions, to make excuses for ourselves. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, you don't understand what I was doing. Well, I'm noticing something in your life, brother. No, 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 you're just not seeing it right. That's our typical response. That's the, the natural response. That's the fleshly response to defend our actions, to, to make excuses for ourselves. Right? Galatians 6.1 is clear, brethren. If you see someone caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, you go. You restore them. But do it in a spirit of gentleness. That idea is humility. Why? Looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. You know who you are. So every single one of us, even though we know Christ, we're just, we're just sanctified humanity. We're, we're, we're still in this mortal body, this fleshiness. We're going to sin. We're going to fall. Even the most mentally strong, we're going to fall. Even in the most menial things of life. The issue isn't, will we? The issue really is, how and what are we going to do when we're confronted with it, how do we respond to that? The attitude of humility responds to rebuke in such a way that it looks at what it needs to fix 
rather than what it needs to defend. Let me say that again. The attitude of humility looks at what it needs to fix in its own heart and life rather than what it needs to defend. In other words, humility recognizes the wrong in comparison to Christ, not others. Humility will desire to do what is right before God, regardless of what everyone else is doing or what anybody else may think. So we want to cultivate humility. Remember who you were. Repent continually. Respond rightly to rebuke. Number four, relinquish your desire for God's desire. Relinquish your desire for God's desire. The disciples are fighting. An argument arose among them. They're fighting with each other. James 4 clearly says why. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it? So what do you do? You kill, you covet. You can't have what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. This is the basis of every fight there that has ever occurred in the face of the earth. You want something, you're not getting it, so you fight. All kinds of rationalizations go into that, and we start to defend ourselves and argue that we were right and all these other kinds of things. This is exactly what's going on with the disciples. This is why John answers the way he does. Our desires become more precious to us than God's desires. What we want is more precious to us than what God wants. So the battle with others ensues. And really, it's a battle with God. Why? Pride unwillingness to relinquish our desire for God's desire. Isn't that Philippians 2? Have this attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus? In other words, relinquish your selfish attitude and take the attitude of Christ. And then he gives those qualities of Christ that he takes himself out of glory and takes on humanity and empties himself and dies for us. All of that is so shocking that it ought to shock us like a paddle on the heart to realize our attitude is wrong. So if we're going to cultivate pride, we need to remember, we need to repent, we need to respond, and we need to relinquish. When we do that, we'll be cultivators of humility. We'll crush pride. You say, did the disciples learn the lesson? Did they learn? Well, look at verse 49 and 50. And John answered and said, Master, we saw some casting out demons in your name. We tried to hinder him. Why? Because he doesn't follow along with us. And Jesus said, don't do that. Don't do that. He wasn't against you. He was for you. John seems to, to have some conviction going on. There's something going on in John's heart that seems to be convicting. Hey, Master, here's what we did. Jesus, maybe you don't fully understand what we were actually talking about. Maybe you don't understand the argument. Of course, John doesn't know, doesn't realize at least all the things that Jesus already knows about him. John doesn't have omniscience about verse 47. Hey, Jesus, let me clarify some things. This is what we were really talking about. Here's what we're doing. We, we were doing something righteous. 
Jesus says, that was just pride, John. Don't do that. Just pride, why? Because if he isn't against you, he's for you. So they weren't simply being prideful amongst themselves. They were allowing pride to show up in how they carried themselves in society, in ministry. This isn't just a little fight amongst them. This is a fight that has to do with the ministry they're doing. They considered what they did an exclusive reality to them. Boy, we can get like that in our lives. How we feel when another person is given responsibility that we'd like to have. They have that, ooh, pride can stir up in me. When a person passes our own ability at spiritual understanding, we can get jealous. If someone's honored in a position that we want to be honored at, oh boy, we can pride stir up. We might serve in a ministry, and for whatever reason, it seems to be one of those ministries that's behind the scenes. Nobody ever sees it. No one ever says thank you to us. Listen, beloved, if you're not careful in your own heart, if you're not careful with your attitude before Christ, if you're not careful to exercise those necessary actions for humility, you're going to become like the disciples did. You're going to start separating from others. You're going to close the door to others. Remember what Paul said to the Philippian believers just before he said that about Christ? He's in prison. Paul's in prison writing this letter. And he heard of others who were taking opportunity to overshadow the ministry. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, whatever in, whether in pretense or in truth, it doesn't matter. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul says, it doesn't matter if I'm eclipsed. It's no big deal to me. The reality is that Christ is proclaimed. Great. You see, beloved, as Christians, we've all experienced God's grace. We've all experienced His grace having been poured upon us, lavishly poured upon us, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1. So we're all special to God. You're saved, you're special to God. And so we can never allow our hearts to say, I have to be something. I have to be something in His kingdom for me to be special to God since God has given me so much. He's equipped me so much. I have to be something. We can't allow the grace of God in our lives to be morphed into an exercise of pride. None of us are great because of us. Those who are truly great are those who are like Christ. Want to be great? Be like Christ. Weak. If you're weak, stand with the weak. Be thankful. Why? Because pride is not a virtue in the kingdom of God. It's an exercise of sin, and we cannot excuse it. We cannot justify it. In fact, the Bible says this, and this is kind of an exclamation point on our time this morning. Here's what it says, Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, it says, he will not be unpunished. (laughs) Jesus is just saying what James said. 
James chapter 4, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's all Jesus is saying here. God's opposed to the proud, guys, but he gives grace to the humble. What makes us great? Being like Christ. Being like Christ. Humble in all things. Well, let's pray. Father, there's, I don't think, anything more difficult for us to even think through, talk about than being prideful people and yet have to preach on humility. Each one of us knows our heart. Greatness is right there, always crouching. Needs to be crushed. Lord, thank you for the example of Christ and patient, compassionate, teaching to us through the lesson to the disciples. Greatness in your kingdom has everything to do with you and nothing to do with us. When we're like Christ, we are great. Help us to be humble, contrite. Help us to tremble at your word. Work to die to self in every area that you might be exalted and praised. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.